Yes, I mean, we need to bow down before Dede. Uh, her real name was André de Jean. She was young. She was about 24, 25. She had worked as a nurse and managed to smuggle out the first of the many people she smuggled out uh, from Belgium and got them down to Vichy, got them back to Britain. That was when she decided that her work from then on was to help men escape. And she set up the famous Comet Line. I mean, there were two great escape lines, really. Uh, one was Pat O'Leary and one was Dede's Comet Line. And the Comet Line got out more downed airmen than anyone, a thousand, uh, which was truly incredible. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend, James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. During the 20th century, when great powers clashed and the concept of total war turned into grim reality, women were to carve out significant roles in many parts of Britain's war effort. In the First World War, their roles were limited largely to nursing and factory work. Yet by the Second World War, seven million women were employed in a vast panoply of tasks. They constituted 75% of the Bletchley Park workforce by war end. They flew every type of aircraft to frontline squadrons. They worked as mechanics, drivers, couriers, and RAF radar plotters. Finally, they undertook the most dangerous of missions as agents of MI9 and the Special Operations Executive. This, then, is their heroic story. Jamie, you have a citation with you. I do, Tom. I have a citation for my great-great-aunt, Mary Bond. And she was an extraordinary woman. She was young. She was in her early 20s. And this citation is from the King, and it commands Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig to mention her in dispatch for her gallant and distinguished services in the field during the Great War. And it's signed by Winston Churchill because in 1919 he was Secretary of State for War. So there you have a token of appreciation for a woman who went out to serve near the Western Front as a Queen Alexandra nurse. And she and her two sisters, Dorothy and Nell, all went out to do that. And you have to put it in the context of the time. They were privileged, genteel. They had been homeschooled by governesses. They lived in a beautiful house with its own park and an estate with amazing views overlooking the Contocks and out over Bridgewater Bay. And yet they decided to go out to volunteer and put themselves, not just in danger, but expose themselves to the horrors and carnage of the Western Front. And they didn't need feminism. They didn't need the suffrage movement to motivate them to do that. They were driven by compassion and humanity, by a quiet sense of duty and of doing the right thing. 
and of course, a, a love of king and country. And like so many women of their background, they went out to do this task. And that's really where our story begins. And that's who I'd like to dedicate this podcast to. Okay, Jamie. So nursing was at the core of what women did in the First World War. Very much so. I think if you go to Ypres today, which was very much at the front line um, in Flanders during the Great War, there is a 7.2-mile road lying behind it, going back to Popperinga that was in the rear area. And along that road today, you will see scores of cemeteries. And each of those cemeteries marks the point where there was a field hospital, a casualty evacuation center, a field dressing center. And although there are young men lying in their thousands in those graves, those sites are also where so many young women worked as nurses to try and look after them, care for them, and save their lives. So it's particularly poignant. Close to Popperinga is the cemetery, and in that cemetery, apart from the war dead, is the grave of a woman, Nellie Spindler. And she was a staff nurse and was hit by shell fragments and is one of two British women buried in Belgium. So that's our starting point for the nurses of the Great War, and particularly the Queen Alexandra nurses. That leads us on to one of the great heroines of them all, Edith Cavell. Yes, she's an amazing sounding woman and certainly deserves her own spot in this discussion. So who was she, Edith Cavell? Well, she was really a Victorian because by the time she died, she was 49. She had really joined up as a nurse at the London Hospital in the late 19th century. And in 1907, she went to Brussels to work in a major infirmary there. And she remained there. So she was there when the Germans invaded Belgium in November 1914. And she used her position to start providing shelter, safe houses for British servicemen and for French soldiers as well, and smuggling them out to the Dutch border. And she worked very closely with Prince de Croix, uh, with his chateau nearby. She got other houses that she could put wounded or uh, just unwounded servicemen in, and also civilians of military age, French and Belgian civilians, and try and smuggle them out or hide them. And eventually she was betrayed. She ended up in front of a military tribunal. She never denied that that's what she had done. Uh, there were 27 other defendants. Two of them were shot, and she was one of them. The British actually didn't go out of their way to pressurize the Germans to release her. The Americans did, actually. They made diplomatic representation and said, uh, this will be a scandal if she's killed. Nevertheless, the Germans went ahead, and eventually on the 12th of October, 1915, she was shot at the Tier National Shooting Gallery in Brussels. Almost 30 years later, seven members of Day-Day, the MI9 agents' uh, network, were also shot at that gallery for helping British servicemen escape. There were so many women 
over two world wars who helped British servicemen and soldiers escape and who paid the ultimate price for it. That shooting gallery has a terrible reputation for the executions that it performed. And Edith Cavell was really the first of that breed. Nurses in particular who started this process of of helping, aiding others to get away while they stayed and dealt with the dangers. Yes, she certainly comes across reading about her as being a remarkable woman. You know, when you read about her, it's not the list of medals she received. Actually, it's the list of things like stamps and memorials and medals given to others in her name that comes across. She she kind of set the standard. And her her last words are extremely moving, both the night before she was executed, um, shot. She was said to say the following, patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. And then, of course, her famous words when she was shot at the National Shooting Range, I'm glad to die for my country. Yes, she was a remarkable and incredibly brave woman. And as I said, nursing seems to have been the starting point for so many of them who went on to help the war effort. Uh, and it started with with caring for wounded soldiers and then helping to get them away. And she had arranged so many false papers for these men during the initial stage of the Great War. It's sometimes been suggested that she must have had some sort of training from the Secret Intelligence Service because she knew basics in code and basics of tradecraft. So who knows? But after she died, her body was brought back to Dover and the bells tolled for her. They were half muffled, which tends to only happen for royals. So she did become a great national heroine and was buried at Norwich Cathedral. And like my great-great-aunt Mary, uh, she was just a type. She just had a sense of duty and pursued it. Yeah, fantastic. What a, what a great start. And and there are a couple of other remarkable women in the First World War. Maxime Elliott, an American actress. What about her? Oh, she was fantastic. She was forthright, opinionated, statuesque, and quite often it takes an American to kick some butt and get things going and cut through the red tape and the nonsense of bureaucracy. And she was extremely moneyed and she had launched herself into British society. Uh, Her great friend was Winston Churchill. And she used her contacts and her friendships to really push things along. She had gone to Brussels at the start of the war. And she was so appalled at the German terror, as it was called, what the Germans had landed on the Belgian population. And no one else was really taking much notice at the time. They were too concerned about what the British army was going to do and what military maneuvers were in train. But no one was really looking at what was happening to the Belgian population, who were being summarily executed, who were starving, who were being pushed out of their houses. It was one of the worst winters on record, incredibly cold. Luckily, Maxine Elliott was there to help. And she commandeered schools, she commandeered trucks, she got British soldiers involved. She found a 150-foot barge called Julia, 
and she had it converted into a grain store, into a medical center, into a soup kitchen. And she started traveling the waterways of Belgium, particularly around the Flanders area, distributing food and aid to thousands of starving Belgian civilians. She managed to persuade Churchill to make space on ships, naval ships, civilian ships, to allow her medical aid to get across to where she wanted it to be. And she even held drinks parties to make contacts with senior officers uh, on her barge. So she was quite a sort of society hostess, even in the middle of this bleakness and horror. And it's reckoned that by the time that there was an official body set up to actually take aid to the civilians in 1916, that she was responsible for saving up to 350,000 Belgians. So she is the most incredible woman. And, and yet she didn't get much recognition or any recognition. No, she didn't really. And she ended up with the Riviera set at the beginning of the Second World War and died in 1940. So she, she was very much under the radar, but she did an amazing amount of good. And she was recognized by the Belgians who did give her a lot of decorations. And she was hugely admired and much loved. Well, now we come on to a fantastic-sounding woman, the Indiana Jones of uh, women in the First World War, Gertrude Bell. What's, yeah. what's her story? Yes, and she, she marks really the, the shift towards a more operational role that you, you got a lot of in the Second World War. But Gertrude Bell, again, was the most incredible person. She, she was an archaeologist, a cartographer, a linguist, a diplomat, and most importantly, a spy. And without her, there would absolutely have been no Arab revolt, no uprising against the Ottomans, no Lawrence of Arabia. She was incredible. And in 1915, she joined the Arab Bureau in Cairo and was essentially a spy and diplomat for British military intelligence. She had incredible contacts among the Arabs, she knew the Hashemites very well and pushed them and their interests. And without her, there would be no modern-day Iraq, for example. She was critical to the founding of that. But it was her ability to stitch this coalition of Arab sheikhs together that allowed T. Lawrence to end up leading and pushing them in their uprising against the Ottoman presence in Arabia and Mesopotamia. And her maps were critical. She always said of T. Lawrence that if, if Lawrence had followed one of his own maps, he would have died. And the fact that she too slipped unnoticed under the radar that people until recently didn't really appreciate her significant contribution. It can be seen by the film Lawrence of Arabia, where I think there's a scene where one of them goes, and we have here a map prepared by Mr. Bell. The filmmakers had obviously seen G. Bell and assumed it was a bloke. Yeah. But no, it was Gertrude. There was huge stress involved in what she did. She died young, uh, and it was really because of the pressure of what she had done during the war and just after the war, trying to knit these clans together, trying to push the Arab interest and push their interest uh, in terms of where they could sit with the British still there as well. It was often an uncomfortable situation. 
And both she and Lawrence, I think, always felt that the Arabs had been betrayed in the post-war environment. But quite often, the peaceful environment post-war is very different to the war environment, and interests change, loyalties change, direction changes. And Gertrude Bell, I think, was a victim of that. But certainly without her, we would never have had the victories that we did have uh, around the Levant in, and in Arabia. Well, her obituary sums it up well, I think. It says, no woman in recent time has combined her qualities, her taste for arduous and dangerous adventure with her scientific interest and knowledge, her competence in archaeology and art, her distinguished literary gift, her sympathy for all sorts and condition of men, her political insight and appreciation of human values, her masculine vigour, hard common sense and practical efficiency, all tempered by feminine charm and a most romantic spirit. And you had to be damn good as a woman in those days to actually get your head above the parapet, to be noticed and to be listened to. And she won the admiration and respect of all the men around her and the high command. And that was very difficult to do in those days. So moving into the Second World War, Jamie, we have uh, women moving into a more operational role. That includes combat. And I have a very good example for you, which you're going to tell us about, Ursula Graham Bauer. Yes, and again, it's this combination of fortitude, pluck, daring, and amateurism, which is so remarkable, and yet they made an incredible go of it. And Ursula Graham Bauer, by training, she was an anthropologist. She was out in Burma when war broke out. She was a great expert in the Nagar tribe, the hillsmen, and also headhunters. And she lived with them for a long time. And when war broke out, she offered her experience of these tribes to the British military. And the British military in Burma used a group called V-Force, and these were irregulars. You've heard of the Chindits, you've heard of 14th Army. But V-Force were spectacularly successful in spying on the Japanese. Most of the intelligence we got on the Japanese came from V-Force, came from the locals, the natives, and the Brits who were attached to those units. And Ursula Graham Bauer ended up leading 150 of them. They were, they were known as Bauer Force. And they not only spied on the Japanese, they also ambushed them. Uh, they laid many traps for them. And uh, Ursula Graham Bauer got involved in a lot of those ambushes. Uh, apparently, she wore out two Sten guns in close quarter battle with the Japanese. And this is a Rodine-educated girl. I mean, never had she expected to be involved in combat. But this shows how much things had moved on from the Great War, that women for the first time were being trained in sabotage and ciphers, in silent killing, in how to use a Sten gun, in explosives, and were extremely useful. And as we'll see later on, in places like occupied France, once 
the young men were being taken for forced labor in Germany, it was very useful to have girls between 18 and 25 taking down airmen through stations, through Vichy, through German checkpoints, because no one would raise an eyebrow. So women moved into these operational theaters, operational roles, very well and, and did amazingly. And Ursula Graham Bauer sort of led the way for that in a very unforgiving environment. Jamie, you mentioned the Nagar and headhunting. Tell us a little bit about them. Well, a lot of the theatres of war in which Britain and Japan were involved, the, the local tribes were headhunters, whether it was East Timor or Burma. And quite a lot of these tribes, they used to cut the heads off Japanese, they would shrink them, and then they'd polish the glasses and put them back on. So a very charming souvenir was always available if you were a tourist in the area. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Back in Britain, we have MI9, the organisation in Room 900, which is going to take charge of some of these activities in France. Yes, they were never a sabotage organisation, unlike the Special Operations Executive. There were many different intelligence fiefdoms, many different roles that were required. And MI9 was absolutely critical because there were so many downed airmen. Certainly by the time that Bomber Command started its campaign against Germany and the American 8th Air Force were hitting targets in Germany, you always got downed airmen who needed to be retrieved. These were highly trained, highly expensive people to train. They needed to be got out. A lot of the early uh, attempts to get people out were conducted by Belgian and French nurses. And they managed to smuggle out a thousand British soldiers after the summer of 1940, when British soldiers were stranded at Dunkirk and around Dunkirk. And they got them out down to the south and across the Pyrenees into Spain. What, these were some of the stragglers who didn't get into the original uh, these, evacuation? These were the stragglers. And what is so extraordinary about these MI9 networks is that they were DIY affairs. They were started by locals. A lot of them were run by the most incredible women. The first networks that were set up actually was, was really one of the most famous ones, was the Pat O'Leary line, as it came to be called. And that was set up by Ian Garrow, who was a young Seaforth Highlander who got across into Vichy, France. He stayed there. He refused to leave. And he started making contacts, and he had some fantastic women available who acted as couriers, who set up safe houses, and started bringing men down from northern France. He arranged guides to take them across the Pyrenees into Spain. And so that network began to evolve. It just fitted together, put together by civilians. And MI9, those volunteers, there were 12,000 of them by the end of the war, 500 ended up being executed or dying from starvation in the camps. Hundreds more died after the war from the privations they had suffered in camps such as Dachau and Ravensbrück. They had a terrible time. It's very difficult when you're running those sort of networks to have any sort of security. You're very open to penetration by double agents. There were the German security services, the Luftwaffe security services, the Abwehr, the Gestapo, the Sicherheitsdienst. So all these organizations were trying to penetrate those 
escape networks. And you can't have a cell structure. By their very nature, they are open, they're fluid. You have a lot of people passing through them. And by the end of the war, those networks had saved up to 7,000 American and British airmen across Europe. In Northern Europe alone, it was getting on for 4,000 of them. It was an incredibly important function. So, and, and those and those women who were running it, I mean, they knew the risks, didn't they? I mean, they knew that they were essentially going to be caught, rather like bomber pilots knew that their time was going to be up after seventeen missions. Oh, and the respect and the love that those bomber pilots had for the people who got them out it just survived for decades after the war. It was an incredible bond, and when. Uh, Ian Garrow got down to Marseille and started running his networks there. He had fantastic women like Nancy Wake, who was a New Zealander. She was formidable, very vivacious, very smart. In the end, she got managed to escape. Her husband was caught and executed, uh, but she got back to Britain, retrained as an SOE agent, was parachuted back into the auberge in France and did an amazing job. Um, legend has it she cycled 500 kilometers just to send a, a coded message back to Britain. She was remarkable, and she survived the war. There are a couple more stories of Nancy Wake that vividly demonstrate the sort of character she was. There was one time that she was heading down to Marseille with a suitcase full of SOE equipment and probably explosives, and she was wondering how she was going to get through the barriers and checks at Marseille Station. And she started getting chatted up by a German. And she flirted back so outrageously that by the time they got to Marseille, she got the German to carry her suitcase and show his special pass and get her through the checkpoints. And it just shows incredible nerve. There was another time when she spotted several Gestapo men standing next to a car. And she was with two companions at the time, and she ran up to the Gestapo and said, can you give me a lift? And to the horror of her accomplices, she got into the car and was driven back home. And they saw her later, and she just laughed and said, well, I just didn't want to walk. But it just shows huge nerve and huge daring. It's that sort of front, that sort of chutzpah that got her through those incredibly dangerous times. People forget that it was so dangerous for these individual agents. If you take somewhere like Marseille, there were 20 French agents, pro-Nazi agents, working for the Germans, for every German. So in Marseille, there were 50 German Gestapo, but there were 1,000 French agents. And that was a pattern repeated through France. So it just shows the sorts of odds that were stacked against those people who are working for SOE and MI9. When the Pat O'Leary line was busted open at one stage and Ian Garrow ended up uh, in prison, it was taken over by a Belgian called Albert Garis, and he and other agents managed to bust him out of jail, got Ian Garrow out of French prison in Vichy, had him disguised as a French gendarme, which was ridiculous because he was over six feet, didn't walk like a French gendarme at all. But they got him out. He managed to escape back to Britain. Albert Grease took over. And the people who ran his networks in Vichy were actually women, and remarkable women at that. 
the first woman of the Patelieri line to concentrate on is Madame Montgerard, who was this formidable character who ran the Hotel de Paris in Toulouse. She just sat there. She, was, she could have been doing her knitting in front of the guillotine. She was totally impassive, totally unperturbed. Her hotel was used as a refuge from anyone who was trying to hide from the police and the, uh, the authorities in Vichy. And of course, the usual array of downed British airmen who were waiting to be spirited across the Pyrenees into Spain. And eventually she was caught, spent a couple of years in French concentration camps and survived. The other extraordinary character was Marie-Louise Dissard, who ran a dress shop in Toulouse. It is amazing that she was never caught. I think one of the reasons was that by the time the Germans took over Vichy, uh, they couldn't believe that this 61-year-old dress shop owner could have anything to do with the resistance or getting downed airmen out. Uh, Yet she at one stage went to the prison that Albert Rees was imprisoned in because eventually he was captured too. And because he ran the Pat O'Leary line, that was his, his... essentially his nom de guerre. She was going up and down outside the prison shouting, Pat, Pat, mon chéri, <laughs> Pat. And, and people just thought she was a lunatic. Yeah. But, but, but she, was, she was the sort of uh, the survivor uh, of the, the only person who wasn't rolled up in the O'Leary line. She was never caught. But as yeah. I said, I don't think anyone ever suspected her. Yeah. I think had the, the Germans not taken over and the Vichy authorities had still been in charge, I think they would have probably homed in on her. Yeah. But in a way, she was lucky the Germans took over Vichy. She was left alone. She managed to get up to 700 downed British airmen out across her own network, across the Pyrenees. So remarkably effective. And she personally went and picked them up uh, from the borders of Switzerland and, and took them across France and and got them out over Spain. So she was the most remarkable person and and incredibly brave. The, the famous um, MP, Eri Neve, who is an officer of MI9, he said that with the arrest of Garis and the other members of the Pato Leary line, that Dissard and her cat were almost the only survivors of the O'Leary organisation. Well, yes, and, and Mifouf, her, her cat, became almost as famous <laughs> as she did. And uh, apparently the cat knew exactly what sort of mood she was in. And she was formidable. But the woman who got out more than anyone was the legendary Dede. Yes, I mean, we need to bow down before Dede. Uh, Her real name was André de Jean. She was young. She was about 24, 25. She had worked as a nurse and managed to smuggle out the first of the many people she smuggled out uh, from Belgium. And got them down to Vichy, got them back to Britain. That was when she decided that her work from then on was to help men escape. And she set up the famous Comet Line. I mean, there were two great escape lines, really. One was Pat O'Leary and one was Dede's Comet Line. And the Comet Line got out more downed airmen than anyone, a thousand, uh, which was truly incredible. And she did it really all on her own. It was a, it was a home-built um, escape tunnel, really. And 
all of her helpers were Belgium. She decided she didn't really want MI9 involved in it. She didn't want the French involved in it. She used her Belgian family, her Belgian contacts to run this network all the way from Belgium to Paris and down to the South France, down to Toulouse, Marseille, down to Saint-Jean-de-Luz, and get them across the Pyrenees into Bilbao. And she led 18 missions herself across the Pyrenees. And in July to October uh, 1942 alone, she got out over 50 uh, downed airmen. So it was an incredible service that she provided to the Royal Air Force. Her network was constantly under pressure. The Germans were desperate to stop uh, airmen getting back. Uh, Reich Marshal Hermann Goering took a personal interest in stopping uh, Allied bomber pilots getting back to Britain. He knew what an important service this provided. But what Dede had done was uh, set up initially her base in Brussels. Her father was a schoolmaster, ran a primary school, and she got him involved and started setting up this network and running people down to the south. It was incredibly dangerous work, and it, it got so hot in Brussels that she moved to Paris and then down to the south. Her father stayed, refused to leave Brussels, and in the end, he was caught and executed in 1944 with others. Members of her network were all captured in Brussels, and they were executed, as I said earlier, at the National uh, Rifle Range in Brussels. That section of the line was then taken on by Baron Grenville, a Belgian aristocrat who used the Red Cross Swedish canteen in Brussels as a safe house, kept the line going, and Dede kept on taking downed airmen uh, down into the south. Unfortunately, the whole network was riddled with double agents coming into it. There was a terrible uh, British traitor uh, called Harold Cole, and he's suspected of having uh, been directly responsible for the deaths of 150 um, MI9 helpers. And just remember, these were civilians, so many of them. They were housewives, farmers, you name it, dotted across the whole length of the line. They were constantly being rolled up by the Gestapo and SD and other units. Dede herself was captured. She ended up at Ravensbrück concentration camp and managed to swap identities. And the reason she probably survived was that the Germans couldn't believe that someone so young, so vivacious, uh, could possibly be responsible for actually masterminding the whole escape network. So it was her father, even though she confessed in order to try and save others, that she had set up the whole network. Uh, it was her father who was executed and others that were executed, and she survived. After the war, she was highly decorated um, by the Allies, and she went to work in Africa. She, she lived till the age of 90, so at, at least she lived when so many others uh, didn't. I like the quote that said when she met up with downed airmen, she would say, my name is Andre, but I would like you to call me by my code name, which is Dede, which means little mother. From here on, I will be your little mother and you will be my little children. 
It will be my job to get my children to Spain and freedom. And the reply from the downed airman apparently was, our lives are going to depend on a schoolgirl. Well, that's the thing. But what an incredible schoolgirl. <laughs> she was a great character. And just, you know, for downed airmen who were on the run, you can imagine having these young people who were so enthusiastic and so dedicated to their cause, helping them. And most of Day-Day's network were young. They were, they were all between 18 and 25 because they were the ones who would incur the least attention from the German authorities. There was another amazing woman when, when Day-Day was captured. The person who kept the line running down in the south was a Madame de Grief, another Belgian, and she was truly formidable. She was Belgian again, and she essentially ran the black market network in the area. In fact, she was so good at, in the black market that she managed to blackmail uh, German officers to stay away from her, and she was never caught. She managed to smuggle out almost 400 uh, after Dede was caught. So she was very important to keeping that network alive. And this is what you find time and time again, that every time a network was broken open, there would be other volunteers starting up again or people squirreled away who, who would just keep going. Despite the incredible danger Desp and the almost near certainty of being caught. Yes, and being tortured and being executed. And Madame de Grief, her children, were also involved in running messages and getting airmen uh, across the Pyrenees. And it was an expensive business. I mean, the, the, the rate for uh, paying guides to get downed airmen across the Pyrenees started at 6,000 francs, and by the end of the war had probably quadrupled. I mean, it was, it was an expensive business. And another really fantastic character who was incredibly lucky to survive the war was Mary Lindell. Yes, I think even Airy Neve, who was responsible for those networks running, running them from London, uh, was amazed that she survived. She was, in the true sense, a, a, an amateur enthusiast. I mean, there was a moment when she was taking downed airmen through a town and, and shouted to them in English, I think we should get your fake documents now. I mean, <laughs> I mean, she was loathed by the hierarchs in the war office. She just didn't listen. She didn't want to know. And she did things completely her own way. In 1941, she was captured by the authorities in Paris, where she lived. They gave her 11 years hard labor for helping to get uh, British servicemen out of the war zone, out of German hands. And she started off by uh, faking Red Cross documents, by putting pressure on people like von Bismarck, who was in Paris, to get her documents to get sick Belgian children uh, down to Vichy and across to safety. And she started doing that with um, British servicemen and airmen. When she was caught, she turned up in front of the court and they discovered that she had a croix de guerre from the first war and as a nurse, another nurse, just like Dede, of course. They immediately stood up and saluted her and reduced her sentence to nine months 
in solitary confinement, at which point she said, oh, just long enough to have a baby with Adolf. <laughs> and the German judge said, um, what is she saying? And her defense lawyer said, she's saying she respects the verdict of the court. She was also charged at the time with showing contempt towards the German army because she had called them swines. And she told the judge that what she meant by that was that the Germans were noble like wild boars. And so she always had the comeback. She always had the last word. She served her sentence. She went on trying to get British soldiers out from France. At one point, uh, she ended up in a car with a Welsh guards officer sitting in the back who spoke no French at all and looked like a guards officer. She gave a lift to a German Luftwaffe pilot who had just been bombing England and his crippled aircraft had crashed and he had bailed out in France and waved Mary Lindell down. So she was sitting in the front with this German officer who, who said... Um, who's that man in the back? Is he a simpleton? And she said, yes, he is a simpleton. He's my mechanic. And she had to drive round this base, this German air base, with this German pilot who was showing off the bombers while this poor Welsh guards officer sat completely <laughs> mute in the back. Chewing on his leek. Yeah. <laughs> so she, she, she was amazingly lucky for a time. But eventually... Uh, things caught up with her. And she she managed to get two of the cockle shell heroes out, the guys, the Royal Marines, who had raided the harbour at Bordeaux and stuck limpet mines on German ships. Two of them, the commander of the mission, Blondie Hasler, and Corporal Bill Sparks, uh, managed to get as far down as they could, as far south as they could. And they walked into a cafe and totally by chance they bumped into someone who actually knew Mary Lindell. She managed to get them out. She had a lot of misfortune in her missions. At one point when she came back, uh, landed by Lysander and uh, got on a tandem bike with another agent, they were hit by a car and she was declared dead uh, by the French. Uh, the other resistance people started digging a grave for her, but a local doctor came round and managed to revive her. It turned out she had a broken leg and broken ribs, but she survived that. But eventually she was caught. As she was being transported from Beiritz to Paris, she leapt from the train or tried to leap from the train, and she was shot in the head and through the cheek. But a German doctor uh, managed to save her life, and she ended up at... Ravensbrück concentration camp. It appears that she managed to save people from death and from going off to being gassed, and she continued her work there. But she wasn't someone to be meddled with at all. And she survived, just a great spirit and a great character, and just a great amateur who survived in spite of rather than because of uh, who she was, I think. I know. I mean, considering how many of them didn't survive in the terrible deaths that they experienced it is a kind of relief in the telling of this story to be able to have some uh, moments of sunshine okay well another one another amazing character we just keep bringing them on virginia hall she was an american woman just like maxine elliott she went into france 
based herself in Lyon. Originally, she had tried to join Britain's ATS, been turned down because she was a foreign national, went to France, worked as an ambulance driver uh, with the French army, and eventually was spotted by Nick Boddington of SOE, and she joined uh, the French section, F section of SOE, went into France. And this is where we start moving into SOE territory. Special operations executive. That's right. And that was tasked with setting Europe ablaze by uh, using sabotage and assassination and everything else to undermine the Germans in occupied territories. You know, some of those agents move between the two groups, but not often. In contrast to Mary Lindell, Virginia Hall was the consummate professional. And it's no coincidence that post-war, the CIA used many of the techniques that she developed in terms of disguise, in terms of running safe houses and cells. She was an incredible uh, icon, really, for the intelligence community. It's pretty amazing that she had a false leg as well that she called Cuthbert. She had shot her leg off. Uh, or at least shot her foot off back in the early 30s while she was snipe shooting. And this wooden leg had an aluminium heel and toes, and she ended up carrying microfilm in her aluminium heel. It's amazing that she could develop her disguises in spite of this wooden leg. And she not only changed her hair, at one stage when she came back into France, she filed her teeth down to look like an old lady. She also used to pad her cheeks out with rubber pads to make herself look younger and give herself a fuller face. So she was a consummate spy. And when she first went into uh, Vichy, France, it was in Lyon that she based herself. She posed as a New York Post journalist and actually filed reports and had coded messages in those reports. And it was only later on that she started using operators in the area and things like that. But she knew everyone, befriended everyone. At one stage, she befriended the madam who ran the most successful brothel in Lyon. She did the most remarkable thing. She then befriended a gynecologist who wrote white tickets, clean bills of health for the most pox-ridden prostitutes so they could sleep with German soldiers and officers and spread venereal disease among the German forces. And that was her attempt, her DIY attempt at biological warfare. She got the girls in the brothel to spike German drinks, to get them hooked on heroin, to get them so drunk or stoned that they would have their pockets uh, rifled and the, any documents in there photographed by the girls. She got a lot of intelligence out and managed to also help escaped airmen get across. So she was liaising with MI9 circuits as well at that time. But she did the most amazing job and survived and wasn't caught. She had this sort of sixth sense. It's often said that she avoided uh, meetings where suddenly the either the Vichy authorities or the German authorities would turn up and they were desperately hunting for her, but they never, they never caught her. Um, she apparently used the mother of Jean-Michel Jarre, the uh, pop singer, to store weapons in the back of her shop. So she had contacts everywhere. 
And eventually she escaped across the Pyrenees, sent a message to SOE going, uh, Cuthbert, her, her leg, her prosthetic leg, Cuthbert might prove troublesome and got the message back, if Cuthbert troublesome, eliminate. They obviously thought it was some traitor or another agent. Shoot her foot off again. Yes, but th- then she she parachuted back. She got in, back into um, France in 1944 as a wireless operator and continued to do amazing things, sabotage operations and everything else that SOE was involved in. So she was truly remarkable and very professional and worked in intelligence after the war. And this was someone who at one stage wasn't allowed into the American diplomatic corps because she had a prosthetic limb. So she certainly proved her value uh, and did incredible things. And so she really um, bridges the gap between what we've been talking about up to now, which is MI9, and getting allied soldiers back to Britain through various routes, and what we've also mentioned, the Special Operations Executive, SOE. So let's have a talk about the SOE now and and the brave women who worked for them. Yes, and the thing about SOE is the agents were, on the whole, well trained, although it was essentially an amateurish network in in terms of the people they recruited. When you look at Mary Lindell, who was doing the escape networks, the only bit of armed training she did was with her 38 caliber pistol, but she hadn't been trained in sabotage or anything else. So SOE was really a step up in terms of the training. If MI9 was the Cinderella service and was set up by amateurs and was uh, homegrown, SOE was more organized. But the problem with SOE, apart from the fact that it quarreled relentlessly with intelligence organizations such as MI6, in fact, the SOE who were based at Baker Street always called MI6 the bastards of Broadway, there was little love lost. And the problem is that intelligence organizations want still waters in which to fish for their intelligence. SOE was there to sabotage and destroy. So you can see the tensions involved, you know, the differences in what their roles were. One of the problems of SOE and their agents going into occupied countries is there was a lot of luck involved. I remember talking to an old SOE man who said to me he was on a train near Paris and a woman leant forward and said, what a lovely pair of shoes. My husband bought a pair like that in London before the war. And there was a Gestapo informant on board and he was captured and ended up in uh, at least three Uh, concentration camps, but survived. As you can see, there was a lot of chance involved. One of the other problems was that the women who were sent were really used as couriers and transmitters, as wireless operators. Their expected lifespan by 1943 was about six weeks, because the Germans had very good detector equipment. So if you were operating a wireless, however much you moved around, they were going to home in on you. And thirdly, and perhaps the most important thing, was that the SOE networks were riddled with traitors and collaborators. And most of the women who were caught were actually betrayed. You know, when you find someone like Odette Churchill, who went in uh, to deal with one of the networks, the spindle network that she was sent to join, she immediately started suspecting several of the members of that network. 
you can tell from the politics of the time, the fact there was so much tension between the communist Makisad and the, and the free French. There were all these divisions. It's worth remembering that until the Germans started taking young French men as forced labor in Germany to work in their factories, uh, the number of active French resistance members were probably only about four and a half thousand in the entire population. That's 0.01% of the French population. And the size of the French resistance only grew when Frenchmen started escaping into the woods and hiding from the German draft into forced labor. The people who organized them were the SOE agents who parachuted in or were landed by Lysander by moonlight. So there was that problem of betrayal right from the start. And I'm probably with Max Hastings here in believing that the actual strategic effect of the French resistance was tiny. Politically, post-war, it's obviously important because it gave France a bit of pride, a bit of belief that at least some people fought. And, uh, you know, the Free French in Italy, for example, did extremely well. But it's a French resistance that people home in on. But actually, as an effective fighting force, their contribution was pretty small. And they also had um, the fear of reprisal as well. A terrible. I mean, if you see what the uh, Das Reich division did to villages like Orador, where hundreds of civilians were killed, the boys and men were hanged from lampposts, and the women and children were herded into churches and barns and killed through fire and explosives. So th- there was always that fear. But then again, there was always that undercurrent of betrayal and politics. The SOE landed in the middle of that, and it was a very difficult balancing act that they had to perform. But the girls who went in did the most extraordinary job and were amazingly brave, and many of them suffered uh, terribly uh, at the hands of the Germans once they were caught. Okay, well, let's talk about some of these uh, remarkable women who worked for SOE? Well, Vera Atkins is possibly the linchpin of the whole organization. She was responsible for the female agents, uh, about 27 of them that were sent into France. There were 39 of them throughout the whole war. She was really selected for SOE because she had worked with Colin Gubbins, who uh, was the head of the whole organization. And she had been with the British military uh, mission that went into Poland at the outbreak of war. She had managed to help spirit away the Polish cipher experts who had managed to build replicas of the Enigma machine. And so she was trusted. She had also been in Holland uh, to bribe an Abwehr official to help Uh, get her cousin out of Romania. She was the daughter of a German Jew and of an English Jewish woman. She spoke several languages, and she was a very tough, formidable person. She's quite controversial. She wasn't universally liked. People have said she didn't take responsibility for any mistakes she made, but she took a great interest in the safety and security of the women she sent into occupied territory. She used to take them to Thamesford or Tangmere to 
the airfields from which they flew out, would go through their pockets, make sure that they weren't carrying any compromising material, and she would stay late into the night waiting for their coded messages to come through. People have said, oh, she didn't spot that uh, that people had sent duress messages showing that they were in German hands and that more agents were sent out to immediate captivity. But that was actually the responsibility of the chief of F-Section, who was Morris Buckmaster. There was a lot of amateurism involved. You look at the Dutch SOE networks, they were completely compromised and penetrated by Abwehr counter-espionage. And SOE there sent out 50 further agents straight into German hands. It got so bad that the head of the Abwehr in Holland sent a message in 1944 saying, please don't send any more. Uh, He had been operating 14 SOE radio sets. So, as I said, it's such a problem in those situations which are highly political, highly fluid. But it couldn't be said that she didn't care about her girls. She she cared deeply. I mean, uh, what, in 1946, she was sent out to Germany to find 118 of the agents who'd vanished. Yes, and it was privately funded. This was at a time when SOE had been disbanded, the SAS had been disbanded, but she and several SAS members went out to find what had happened to the agents who had disappeared. And ever since October 1942, when Hitler had signed his commando order, his notorious befell to execute anyone involved in sabotage or any special unit, anyone who attacked German posts or assassinated or sabotaged German interests. Um, All those agents uh, really had a death sentence over their heads. So Vera Atkins went out in 46. She roamed around looking for evidence of what had happened to those agents. And 14 of those female agents had been murdered by the Nazis and their deaths had been hidden under the Nachtun Nebel, the night and fog policy of the Germans, and she was determined to find out what had happened. They are heart-rending stories. Uh, They include, of course, the four girls who were murdered at Natzweiler concentration camp. Uh, They were taken there, they were taken from their cells to the uh, crematorium. They were injected with phenol and thrown alive feet first into the furnaces. One of them managed to get out of her stupor, her drugged state, and scratch the face of Peter Straub, her executioner. Later on, he was found hiding out in his flat in Mannheim. And he was identified because he had scratch marks on his face. They were still there. You just realise the horrors and the terrors that so many of these SOE agents were subjected to uh, when they were caught. And that is the sort of horror that uh, Vera Atkins was confronted by as she went around finding out exactly what had happened to the girls she considered her agents. Straub was hanged in '46, but so many others got away. I know. It, it's absolutely extraordinary that, that so many Germans were let off the hook. They got away with it. And the denazification process in Germany after the war was actually pretty limited and pretty sparing. And a lot of the most hideous 
monsters um, manage to escape and start new lives for themselves when their victims never had the chance. The uh, the names of those four women are Diana Rowden, Vera Lee, Andre Borel, and Sonia Olshanese. A sad footnote to that story is that they had been seen by two other agents who were in Natzweiler at the time. And had they not been seen, there's every likelihood that no one would have ever heard of what happened to them. They were actually seen by Albert Garis, who was, of course, Pat O'Leary, who had taken over that MI9 uh, network from Ian Garrow. The other person was Brian Stonehouse, who, after the war, became a portrait painter. He managed to sketch the girls, and they could be identified from those sketches. I actually knew Brian, and he painted the portrait of the Queen Mother that today hangs in the Special Forces Club in London. So he was a very fine artist. And he saw the girls really heading for their executions. And it's very poignant that he and Garis managed to identify them, and thank God they did. So they, in a way, provided the last witness accounts of what happened to them. All right, so another brave lady, Noor Khan. Yes, and she is really an example of incredible dedication, I suppose, overcoming lack of ability. She was not a great agent, but she was an incredibly brave woman. Uh, She, in her training, really showed no serious aptitude for agent work. She was actually known as Bangaway Lulu because of her clumsy Morse code operating. She was frightened of firearms. She didn't like parachute jumping. Her, Her instructors claimed that she was incredibly clumsy. But still, she was sent in to France uh, as a radio operator. And within six months, she was caught. She was taken to the SD German security organization building in Avenue Foch in Paris. And she made two attempts to escape. Eventually, she was taken to Germany and shackled and held shackled for 10 months, solitary confinement. And eventually, On the 12th of September 1944, she was transferred rather abruptly to Dachau. And the following day, uh, she and three other SOE girls, two French and one other English woman, although Noor herself, as you can tell from the name, was Indian, very bravely she went to her death. Um, They were forced to kneel. Um, She and the English girl held hands, the two French girls held hands, and they were shot in the back of the head. So like so many other SOE agents, they met their end. But she was a very, very brave uh, woman, and she was awarded posthumously the George Cross. And uh, the French Croix de Guerre. Of course, and uh, just, just a very brave, brave woman. Another very brave woman was Violette Zabo, and... Everyone who met her always talked about her laughter. In fact, when she was deployed uh, on her second mission, I think it was, she flew out of the airfield and there was an SAS commander there who was also going out into occupied France. And he said that the one thing he remembered about her more than anything was her laugh. And the other person who talked about 
her laughter and her incredible spirit and her impishness was Leo Marx, head of codes at SOE. She made a mark on everyone who met her. She was known by the French as la petite anglaise. She was small, um, but just ferocious in her belief and in her dedication to what she was doing. And she'd already been in France to check out the salesman network, as it was codenamed, and then she went in again. And unfortunately, she had sprained her ankle in a parachute training jump. And when she landed in France, she hadn't been there very long when they ran into a checkpoint. And she started to run. Her ankle was sprained again. She fell over. So she told her accomplice to go, and she started firing her Sten gun. It's believed that she killed two Germans. But she was captured and treated incredibly brutally, like nor before her. Um, so many of these women were tortured or raped or both um, before their execution. Violette, uh, in the end, was executed at Ravensbrück concentration camp. She was placed in what was called Execution Alley and with two other female agents who were so ill by that stage, they were brought along on stretchers and they were machine gunned. That was the sad, tragic end of Violette. But one of the things that has stayed on in the public consciousness is her code poem written by Leo Marx. It's a very beautiful poem and it means a lot to me because Leo Marx allowed me to use it in my first thriller, Deadheaders. So I've always felt rather a connection to that and to Violette and always had the, the, the most utmost respect for her and what she did. This is Violette Zabo's code poem, written during World War II by Leo Marx, head of codes for the SOE. The life that I have is all that I have, and the life that I have is yours. The love that I have of the life that I have is yours and yours and yours. A sleep I shall have, a rest I shall have, yet death will be but a pause. For the peace of my years in the long green grass will be yours and yours and yours. And now we're going to come on to the last of our women of the SOE, although there are many more, obviously. Um, but we're going to talk about Odette Churchill. Yes, she was one of the ones who survived remarkably. Her codename was Lisa. She landed in France in November 1942. She managed to operate for six months. She, she was attached to... Uh, Peter Churchill's network, and they ended up marrying eventually after the war. And that's why she's known as Odette Churchill. And her story, just like Violette Zabo and Carve Her Name with Pride, um, became very well known. Um, she was captured. She was betrayed. Uh, they had moved their network to Annecy in the Alps. And they were eventually um, tracked down by the uh, German agent hunter, uh, Hugo Bleicher. And what might have saved her, and certainly saved Peter Churchill, was that name Churchill. Um, she could claim that 
she was married to Peter Churchill, even though she wasn't at the time, he could claim that he was related to Churchill and therefore it wouldn't be good for the Germans, uh, anyone connected to his case, to have harmed him in any way. But it, it certainly didn't save Odette from being brutally interrogated. She was branded on her back with red-hot pokers. She had her toenails pulled out. She eventually ended up at Ravensbrück concentration camp where she was put in the punishment block. She was starved for weeks on end. She was put next to the crematorium, so used to have burnt skin and hair coming through the cell windows. She had the most dreadful time. And after the war, so few of the people in uh, higher positions actually believed that she had gone through this. They couldn't believe that the Germans would put certainly women through that sort of treatment. But she was incredibly brave and just like Nor, and just like Violet Zabo gave absolutely nothing away. And that's what's so remarkable about all these women when they were captured. They, right to the bitter end, refused to divulge any information that might put others in danger. She was actually the first woman to win the George Cross for her agent work during World War II. And she managed to live to a ripe old age. So it's just nice to end this SOE section with someone who actually survived. Yeah. Well, we're, we're almost there, actually. But we do need to go a little bit further afield, away from France and towards the Far East, because there were obviously very brave women fighting in all theatres of war around the world. And it's worth mentioning uh, one particular incident as a, an example of the way that they behaved bravely and honourably, and, and the enemy behaved in an appalling, cowardly, disgusting fashion. Um, so we're going to talk about the Bank Island Massacre. And what happened there really takes us full circle from where we started, which is with nurses. Uh, the incident here was so symptomatic of how the Japanese behaved during the war. When they took Singapore, they had killed everyone in the hospitals, the patients, the people on the operating theatre, the nursing staff, the surgeons. And this concerned 21 Australian nurses. They had been with wounded men on a ship that was leaving Singapore Harbour in the final days of Singapore's fall. And they had been bombed by Japanese aircraft, ended up grounding on Banker Island. 22 nurses actually got ashore. A hundred of the survivors on board the ship got ashore in total. The nurses stayed with the wounded while a delegation went off to find the Japanese and surrender and tell them that they were there. A lot of the wounded needed medical help, but when 20 Japanese soldiers turned up, they took the walking wounded round the headland and bayoneted them and shot them to death. And then they came back. And what they did was sit cross-legged, cleaning their bayonets and their guns in front of the nurses. It was never known until recently that those nurses had all been raped. And there was one survivor after the massacre. And she eventually talked very recently. She had been muzzled for years by the Australian government. 
and never told the full story. And now it has come out what had happened. After they were raped, the nurses were made to stand waist-deep in the sea, waiting to be executed. The senior matron said, Girls, I'm so proud of you. Then they were all shot. And one survivor managed to eventually crawl from the surf. She had a bullet lodged in her. She was found by a British soldier who had been bayoneted. For three days, they lay there trying to shelter from the sun. Eventually, they were discovered. The surviving nurse was put into a Japanese prison for the next few years, and the British soldier died from his wounds. But it is just one incident that takes us full circle from the First World War, from the incredible sacrifices made by the women in that war and in the Second World War, who were agents and nurses, and takes us to another conflict zone in the Far East. I think all those women played remarkable roles, and it's something that we should celebrate and never forget. And that monument to the women of World War II in London's Whitehall really says it all. It's a very simple but eloquent monument that really speaks of the service that so many women provided in the Second World War in so many aspects of the military and civilian spheres, whether as agents or in the RAF or as nurses, in every aspect of life during World War II. And it's well worth visiting and it's well worth paying one's respects to. And in a way, it defines really what this particular podcast is about in terms of celebrating and lauding and publicizing the contribution made by women during the two conflicts of the 20th century. Uh, thank you, Jamie, for such a moving description of so many brave women during the conflicts of the 20th century. I mean, this year has marked the death of one of the great icons from World War II, Dame Vera Lynn. Yes, she was the voice of World War II. Other than Winston Churchill, she has one of the most recognisable voices of that time. And it was a voice that stretched out across the globe and touched the lives and gave hope to millions from the deserts of North Africa to the jungles of Burma. And I was so privileged to have met her a few times. And, you know, they always say, never meet your heroes or heroines. But in this case, whoever said that was totally wrong. She personified and exuded a decency and a kindness and a charity that I don't think I've ever seen in anyone else, a remarkably warm, kind person and someone who was so recognizably English. She couldn't have been anything else. We owe her so much. Personally, I'm just so glad I met her. And Tom, it's nice to end with something uplifting about someone who did so much and continued into ripe old age. It is. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, 
bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.